Great to see you guys this morning. Uh, I love holidays. I'm just one of those guys that gets all into holidays, whether it's Christmas, Easter's coming up here in three weeks, or Fourth of July. I'm the guy that's your neighbor that gets the fireworks and shoots them off until midnight. I mean, I'm that guy. And I love Easter. I love the Easter eggs. I love the Easter bunny. I love the food especially. But I know at this time of year, Easter causes us to pause and think about, you know, what it really means, you know, and the fact that who is Jesus and what he came to do. It uh, reminded me a few years ago when my family and I were serving at a church in Dallas, Texas, and every week on Tuesday afternoon, I would leave the office and go to a local elementary school that we were partnering with, and uh, we would do a program after the school where we would, you know, have activities, have fun, and teach Bible lessons to the kids, and and this was this time of year, actually, where uh, I kind of came in and did the same thing. I was asking them questions. These are like third, fourth, and fifth graders. And I got to the part about who is Jesus' disciples. And, you know, everybody's raising their hand. And I'm picking on Matthew, Mark. And then I was picking on this one little kid. And I said, hey, well, who is Jesus' disciples? And he said, well, my mommy told me that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Ringo, George, so just so there's no confusion this morning before you leave, the Beatles were not the apostles, <laughs> all right? But at some point or another, we're all faced with that question, you know, who is Jesus? Every week we come in here and we worship him and we sing to him, we pray to him, but, but do we really know who he is and what he came to do? And I think the best source to find out that question is Jesus himself. And so we're gonna start off today in the book of John. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out and turn to John. You can also look in your sermon notes in the guide that you uh, received when you came in. They'll also be on the screen. In the book of John, there are several uh, I am statements in which Jesus is describing who he is to his followers and to those who would come after him. And in John chapter 14, we get to the sixth I am statement. And this is what Jesus says in John 14, 1 through 6. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, I would have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you always will be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I am going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now to give you a little bit of context of what's happening here, in John chapter 13, or the chapter just before the one we just read, the Jesus and the disciples are in what we would call the upper room. The time has come, his earthly ministry is complete, and he's about to be arrested and brought in, wrongfully tried, and then, of course, crucified, died, buried, and resurrected. And so he's preparing his disciples that this is the moment. Now, they've been following him, and they've been hearing him talk about this for years, but now's the time to go. Now's the time to do it. And obviously, they're scared. They're a little worried. They're asking questions and says, I don't get what's going to happen, Jesus. And Jesus is trying to redirect their thoughts from the things of this earth and the things that are right in front of them to the things that are to come. And that's what he does. He begins describing that to him about this is what I'm here to do is to take you beyond what this life is on earth. You're just preparing for what you're going to do in eternity. 
And so he starts off, and you can see, and you look in your notes, number one, the very first thing he says is that he is the way. He is the way. The phrase the way constitutes a direction toward a destination. When you ask someone the way, you're wanting to get to a particular place. There is an ending that you want to get to. And what Jesus was telling them is the ending is heaven, is eternal life with God. And I want to look at a case study that will help us kind of understand each of these points. My undergraduate degree was in political science, and so we would oftentimes do case studies as we prepare kind of for law school. I was going to do that before I went into church work. And these case studies would either prove or disprove your point. And so this very first one, our case study today, is about a man named Saul. So we're going to fast forward a little bit in history to after Jesus' crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, to Acts chapter 9, and learn a little bit about what Saul happened, what happened to Saul, and who he is, and how he discovered the way. So look at this with me. In Acts chapter 9, it says this. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Now let's pause right there for just a second. To tell you a little bit about Saul, Saul was a Jewish leader at that time. He had heard Jesus' teachings. He had seen Jesus' teachings. He had seen all these things, but he was a devout Jew. His father was a Roman citizen, and so he had the authority of a Roman citizen as well as a devout Jew. So he had some clout in society. He was kind of well-known, so to speak. And he had heard all these things, and he couldn't stand the message of Jesus, couldn't stand their followers, and he took it upon himself to help stamp all of that out. And so we see that here in Acts 9. Continue on. It says, so he went up to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way. And what's interesting in this passage is the word way is capitalized. And it's the same phraseology that's used by Jesus in John chapter 14. So what we see here is he's not talking about a particular road or a particular street, but he's talking about those who follow Jesus. He is seeking after those who follow Christ and call themselves Christians. And here's why. He wanted to bring them in, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one who you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So here's Saul. He's going to go persecute Christians. He's going to go basically look for Christians in a city called Damascus, arrest them, Bring them back and put them in jail. And along the way, he interacts or has an interaction with Jesus Christ himself who shows up, stops him dead in his tracks, and proclaims, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, what's interesting about this is that in the Bible, we see that there's an exclamation point after his name. And I believe that Jesus is not angry with him. He's just trying to grab his attention. Saul, you know, kind of rattle him. Saul, you know, what are you doing? You know, you, probably some of you know what that's like. I kind of know what that's like. There are times, and, and I know no, none of you guys in this room do this but me. You walk in, your wife's in the living room, and you kind of turn on your favorite TV show or whatever, or your favorite uh, football team is on. You're watching the TV, and you're just kind of zoning out, right? And all of a sudden, I'll be sitting there, and, 
kind of zoning out. And I'll hear these things behind me, like, you know, maybe they're family, I don't know. Uh, they call themselves my children, who knows. Um, but I hear these things around me, but I'm not really paying attention to it because I'm looking at this ball game that I'm really enthralled with. And then all of a sudden I hear my wife go, Bradley, Bradley. I'm like, what? You know, you jump kind of out of the coma that you're in watching the football game. He's like, are you, what did I do? Are you, I'm, no, I've been calling your name for the last three minutes. Now, no other guy in this room does that I know. And wives, you're thinking, wow, your wife has to go through so much, right? But the truth is this, is that Paul, Saul had lived his life hearing Jesus, seeing Jesus, seeing the miracles that were happening, but he wasn't listening. And in this moment, Jesus was trying to catch, his, catch his, himself in this and say, Saul, listen to me. And let's see what else happens in this verse. It says, the men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. Now, I find it fascinating that when Saul was blinded and he got up, Jesus just said, go to the city of Damascus and I will tell you what to do next. He left him to be physically blind. He wanted him to, for the first time in his life, trust someone other than himself. And you see here that the name of the street that he went to was called Straight Street. Now, I don't know if God did this on purpose, but I think it's kind of unique. And I looked it up, and there is actually a street in Damascus today, and it's called Darbel Mustakum, and it means the street that is straight. How fascinating is it that Saul was on the wrong path, he was going all over the place, Jesus stops him dead in his tracks, and then for him to be healed completely, both physically and spiritually, he had to go to a home in Damascus on Straight Street. Maybe a coincidence, but I doubt it. So we see what happens when he finally gets to Damascus in Acts 9, 18 through 20. It says this, instantly something like scales fall from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days and immediately, immediately he began to preach about Jesus in the synagogues saying he is indeed the son of God. So Jesus heals him of his blindness, his physical blindness. Before he met Jesus, he had spiritual blindness, then encountered physical blindness. Spiritual blindness, really all of us at some point or another experience that. We're wandering through life just like Saul and we think we know the truth or we think we know what we're doing or the path that we're on, but we're really, what the Bible would say is spiritually lost or spiritually blind. And then we have that moment where we face Jesus, we see Jesus, we understand who he is, then he comes into our life and comes into our heart and we are no longer spiritually blind, but we're spiritually found. That leads us to the next thing, and that is this. Jesus says that not only he is the, the way, but he is the truth. He is the truth. 
Our case study for this is a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, we're going to go back now in history from Acts 9 to back when Jesus was still alive and, and doing his ministry to John chapter 3. And a man named Nicodemus comes up to him and they have a conversation and we kind of get to peer into this conversation in John 3. And this is what it says. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were, were the group of religious leaders that did not like Jesus at all. And they were after him and they were trying to arrest him and get rid of him in this thing that they called a rebellion. And Nicodemus was one of those. And so he had to find out truth and he came at night. And the reason why he came at night, the Bible tells us, is because if he had been seen with Jesus or even having a conversation with Jesus, it could have been very difficult things for him. It maybe even cost him his life. But yet he was searching for truth so much and he wanted truth so much that he was willing to do that just to sit down and have a conversation with Jesus and ask him these questions. Now what I love about this is that we see in John 3 that when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he has very good questions, Jesus didn't look at him and go, how dare you ask me these questions? Get away from me. No, he didn't do that at all. He welcomed him. He sat down with him. He let him ask his questions, and he answered his questions. You see, for some of us, we may be in this mode where we have questions and we're not quite sure whether we really believe this person named Jesus and this thing called the Bible. But here's the good thing about God. He wants you to question. He wants you to come down and research it and look into it and ask and explore a few weeks ago, I had a phone call from a young man who called into the church, and, and he was about 21, 22 years old, and he had some questions himself, and he wanted to talk to one of the pastors here at Community Faith, so they patched him through to me. And as we were talking, uh, he told me a little bit about his life, and he said he grew up in a church home, and, and his parents were followers of Jesus, but he wasn't quite sure whether or not he believed in this God. Matter of fact, he called himself an agnostic. And at one point in the conversation, he asked me, are you okay with that? And I think he was kind of prepared for me as a pastor at Community of Faith to go, oh, how dare you not believe God? How dare you do this and hang up the phone? But I pointed him to this passage in John chapter 3 and said, hey, let's have a conversation. Let's talk about this. And in fact, God's okay with you asking these questions. And so we began to discuss these things. And, and I share with him even what Jesus said in John 8, 32. And it's a great verse. John 8, 32 says this. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. God wants you to seek truth. He wants you to look into it. He wants you to dig into it. A few years ago, a man named Lee Strobel and his wife were living in Chicago, Illinois. Lee, at that time, was the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, and, and uh, he had won several awards for journalistic uh, achievements and investigative reporting, and, and was very well known in the journalis journalistic area. 
His wife at the time was invited to a local church by a friend of hers, and she started going to church. And over time, as she started going to church, she learned of this man named Jesus, and she decided to give her life and follow Jesus. She came home, told Lee. Lee's like, you know, that's great, honey. I'm glad you're doing that, but that's not for me. I'm an atheist. I don't believe. But if you want to do that, great. I'll let you go do that, but I'm still, I just don't believe in this thing called God. I don't believe in this thing called Jesus. Well, as time progressed, he saw something different in his wife. Her attitude had changed. Her mindset about life had changed, and it intrigued him. So as an investigative reporter, as a journalist, he decided to dig into it for himself. He decided to research and to see if this Jesus Christ was real. Because he thought, if Jesus Christ isn't real, if I can prove that Jesus Christ didn't exist, then this whole thing is a sham. This whole thing is bogus, if I can prove that. And maybe if I can prove that, maybe Jesus Christ was a true person and he lived this earth, but he really died and he's still dead. He didn't rise from the grave and he's not in heaven today alive. If I can prove that's wrong, then I can prove this whole thing is wrong. And so he set out to do research and over a two-year period, he did this. And through that two-year period, what he came to find out was it wasn't wrong, it wasn't false, it was true. And he gave his life to Jesus, and years later, he wrote a book called The Case for Christ. And that may be familiar to you, because last year, about this time, they came out with a movie called The Case for Christ, which was basically an adaptation from his book. I want to read to you a little segment from that book, The Case for Christ, that Lee wrote. And this is what he says. On a November afternoon in 1981, I locked myself in my bedroom and spent hours replaying the spiritual journey I had been traveling for 21 months. I never intended to write about my experience. In fact, it would be years later that I would decide to retrace and expand upon my original investigation by traveling the country to interview scholars for this book. Still, my probe from January 20th, 1980 to November 8th, 1981 had been thorough and exhilarating. I had studied history, sifted archaeology, asked questions and analyzed answers with as much of an open mind as I could muster. Based on the avalanche of evidence that pointed so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, I concluded that it would take more faith for me to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. That's when I prayed to receive Jesus as my forgiver and leader. So I'm grateful for the evidence because it was pivotal in knocking down barriers between Jesus and me. But if you ask me today how I know for sure that Jesus is alive and is the Son of God, I'd say this, because I know him personally, because he is now my friend. You see, Lee sought the truth, and he found the truth, and the truth set him free. Free for what? That's the next thing that Jesus talks about in John 14. And that is that he is the life. So not only is he the way, he is the truth, but he is the life. And our case study for this one is Jesus himself from what he said. Now we go back to John chapter three in that conversation with Nicodemus. And it's a little bit later in the conversation and Jesus is really trying to hone in and, and get Nicodemus to see what it's all about and this is what he said in John 3, 16, and it's a very familiar verse, and I know that many of us have heard this verse, but it's one of the most powerful verses in the Bible, and it says this, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, 
but have eternal life. But God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus repeats this again in John 5, 24. He says, I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. And then in John 6, 47, he says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me has eternal life. Over and over and over again, Jesus is talking about not life on this earth, but eternal life. And he says, I tell you the truth. This is the truth. What I'm about to do is the truth. And what we see here is that Jesus is either the greatest liar and manipulator in the history of mankind, or he really is the son of God. And it happened. There's no in between. And when he talks about this eternal life, what he's trying to do with Nicodemus and what he's trying to do with us and what he tried to do with the disciples is this. Stop focusing on this life that you have here on earth. Because this goes by so quickly. You know, that all of us in here one day are going to die. Now be encouraged. Have a great day. Go home. Thanks for coming. That's exactly what you wanted to hear this morning, right? Yeah. But we are. I think I said recently where a study did the average lifespan of a, of, a, of a female in the United States is 78 and a man is 76. And you think, man, if we live that long, that's a, that's a pretty long life. And, but it goes by so fast. But yet we, we do everything for this life, for this short time here on earth. We strive for everything here on earth. And what Jesus is trying to tell us to do is none of that matters in the end. Because one day, all of us will breathe our last breath and we go into eternity. That's what matters the most. And are we prepared to do that? Because all this stuff that we try to accumulate and all these things we try to accomplish here on earth, I'm not saying it's wrong, but all these things that we strive for, we can't take it with us. It is just us that enters into eternity and will stand before God when we do. A few weeks ago... um, our pastor from our home church in Knoxville, Tennessee, who meant so much to me and my wife and, and really kind of guided us and mentored us uh, through, a, through a period of our life that God was working on and calling us into church work. He passed away at the age of 78. And was, we couldn't go back to, to, to the memorial service, but literally thousands of people filled the room as they come to honor this man because he poured so much into their life. And, he, and the thing we loved about him was he was just real and genuine and and honest, and he's, the way he lived his life was the way he preached on the weekends. And he always had these little phrases that he would repeat over and over and over again to kind of help us remember things and teach us things. And some were just amazing, powerful phrases, and to be honest with you, some were really kind of goofy and funny. And I remember one that he would always talk about when he would say, you know, focusing on eternity and not focusing on this life. He said, I've done several funerals over my life, and I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. I'm going to let you think about that one for a second and let that sink in. Oh, my mic fell off. There we go. But it's true. We can't take anything with us, but yet we strive so hard for this thing called the earthly life. And what Jesus wants us to do is think about eternity with him. Author Max Licato is one of my favorite authors, and he was a pastor in San Antonio. And in his book, 316, 
This is what he says about stepping into eternity and our need for Jesus. He says this, why seek Jesus' help? Because he's been there. But most of all, he's been to the grave, not as a visitor, but as a corpse, buried amidst the cadavers, numbered among the dead, hearts silent and lungs vacant, body wrapped and grave sealed, the cemetery, he's been buried there. You haven't yet, but you will be. And since you will be, don't you need someone who knows the way out? And that's who Jesus is. So the first question that we looked at this morning was, who is Jesus? And now I want to close it with this question. What is your response to Jesus? What is your response? Because all of us in here, regardless of where we are on our life journey, when we're faced with the realities and the truth of Jesus Christ and what he did for us, requires a response. Some of you in here are what I would call searching Maybe you're here for the very first time today at Community of Faith, and I want you to know that we are glad you're here. Maybe you saw a, 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 you got something in the mail, or you saw an advertisement, or a friend invited you, and you thought, I'm going to go check this thing out. And we want you to know that we welcome you, we love you, regardless of who you are, or what you've done, or your background, because God loves you. But you're, but you're searching. You're here to kind of figure this thing out, and you're still not quite sure who this Jesus is. And that's okay to search, but at some point, you have to have a response. Do you believe or don't you believe? That guy Saul that we talked about earlier, when he had that Damascus Road experience and God got a hold of him and changed his heart and changed his life, he also changed his name to Paul. And of course, we know Paul because Paul wrote half the New Testament. He wrote Romans, Galatians, Ephippians. That's a new Bible word. That's the Thomas version. You like that? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul wrote it all. And in Romans chapter 10, he tells us how we can step into that relationship with Jesus, how we can make a decision to really follow him. And it's, and it's quite simple because Jesus did the hard part, but here's what our part involves. And it says this, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't say you might be saved. It says you will be saved. And it says, for it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. So there are two things that we have to do in order to become a follower of Jesus. Just two things. One, the first step is to believe in your heart. The Bible says believe in your heart versus believe in your mind. Because it comes to a point at some point where you can't rationalize it. You think, how can a God who created the universe and created man do this so lovingly for anyone and everyone who would just openly receive Jesus Christ? I can't rationalize it, neither can you. That's why it says believe in your heart. Because sometimes there are things in our life where we just know it. We know it in our heart. We know it in our gut to believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord. And it says, declare with your mouth. There's no magic prayer. There's no magic pill that you can take to do this. God just wants you to be real with him and say, God, I believe I need Jesus in my life. I want to follow him. Forgive me for everything I've done. I want to be yours. And Paul tells us that if you do those two things in that moment, in that instant, you are welcomed into the kingdom of God for eternity. And you become a child of God. 
because you're now a follower of Jesus. Some of you may not be searching. Maybe you've already made that decision. Maybe you did it several years ago as a young child or as a teenager, but you might find your place today where you are stalled. You're kind of in this place in your life where you're not quite sure how you got there, but it just doesn't seem fresh to you anymore. Your faith is kind of on a, on a downward slide, and you don't have these feelings. And you come in, you may sing with Blake and Robin in the band, and, and you kind of feel that moment. You think, well, this is amazing, but, but then you go home Monday through Friday, and it kind of flattens out, and you feel stalled. I know how you feel because I've been there. And the truth is this, is that our faith is what carries us through. It's not about feeling, it's about faith. It's about grinding it sometimes each and every day. Because we understand this, is that Jesus never fails and Jesus is always there. Paul talks about this in Philippians 4. Because he goes back and, and kind of refreshes his mind about what God did to him through that transition in Damascus, on that road to Damascus. And he says, we put behind all the things that of our past when we decide to choose the way of Jesus and we press forward toward that moment in time and eternity. And I like that phrase, press. Because if you find yourself in a position in your Christian life right now where you feel stalled, it's time to press. It's time to push. It's time to take those steps. And you might not be searching and you might not be stalled, and some of us today may be in a really good place in our faith. But I believe that some of us today are a little bit satisfied. We're satisfied with things. Now hear my heart when I say this. I'm going to plow real close to the corn, okay? But there are some of us who, we've got a nice life. We have nice things. We have a nice home, nice job. Things are going really well. We've worked really hard. and We're kind of enjoying all these things. And we come to church and we tithe a little bit and we go on a mission trip maybe or we serve a little bit on the weekend. We check off the good box versus the bad box and we feel satisfied. We feel good. But can I tell you this right now that Jesus didn't come and he wasn't beaten, he wasn't bruised, and he didn't bled, and he didn't die for us to be just satisfied. He came for us to be, to do, to go. If God was finished with you in your life, then the moment that you accepted Jesus, poof, he would have taken you to heaven. Why not? But he didn't. He left you here because there's a purpose that he has for you. And that purpose is a part of his plan. And now's the time to kind of reboot yourself and remind yourself of who Jesus is. Remind yourself of how much Jesus loved you. And I want to ask you this question for those of you that feel like maybe you're in this comfort zone. Maybe that you feel satisfied. I want to ask you this question. Are you doing all in your life that you can do for Jesus. Whether you're a construction worker, an architect, a doctor, a lawyer, a school teacher, are you doing all that you can in your life right now for Jesus? Now you maybe say, I, I'm not. But no matter what category you fall into this morning, here's the greatest news. Here's the best news. That it all comes back it all comes back to Jesus. And no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, just call out his name. Jesus. And he's right there. He's the same yesterday, today, and he will be forever. He never changes. Do you know what the Bible says? That in the mention of his name, Jesus, 
the demons flee. They even mention of his name. The Bible also tells us that Jesus is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords and one day every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He's the real deal. And all he wants you to do is to look to him in every situation because Lee was right, without Jesus, we have nothing. We have no hope, we have no gospel. But with him, we have hope. With him, we have strength. With him, we have peace. And he's calling out to you today to remind you what he did was not just a one-time deal for you in your life, but to carry it through. So I ask you again, to close things out, what is your response to Jesus?